0: The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. This week I'm joined by Dan for a discussion about the traumas he's both seen and experienced. We'll also get into the effect of the traumas on him and his personal life and his battle to defeat his demons. Originally from New York, and I do forgive him for that, Dan moved to Virginia for the job in 2015. I first met Dan around 2016 when he was detailed in to work with me. As you'll hear toward the end of this episode, Dan was a small doses kind of guy for me. But little did I know, he was going through some major issues in his personal life. When I originally sat with Dan a few weeks ago to hear his story, I was pleasantly surprised at the complete change in his approach to people and his life. He is yet another guest I'm happy and proud to call a friend and a brother. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery reach out through instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the we all to offer support and share your story please remember to leave a review on itunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know love or care about enjoy the show try not to get mike believed that's the issue so i don't even know what any of that well doing. that that the two mics are hearing each other. Oh, okay. And so it just affects, it kind of affects your recording. All right. So, oats. Good? Yeah. Feel All right. it, man. Well, joining us today on the show is Dan. He's out of Virginia. He's been with his present department. He's been seven years. He's got 16 years total experience. I'm going to talk to him some about his family history, his fire service history, some of the calls he's run, and the recovery he's been through because the time we sat down to talk about this, his recovery has been pretty amazing and he's still in the middle of a recovery basically. So with that being said, I'll turn the mic over to Dan. He can tell you a little bit of his family history and we'll go from there. How you doing, Dan? I'm good. How are you doing today? I'm doing well.
1: Going on family history. My family is blue collar through and through going back even to my grandfather was a hard hat diver in the Navy during World War II and then rose through the ranks of Con Edison in New York. So it's always been like hard working. And then my dad has been firefighter 42, 43 years now. Same department in New York. And then his profession was a corrections officer. So blue collar, family service, all that's been huge, literally from birth. And even my mom worked in the ER as a x-ray tech. And that's actually how they met cause Ironically enough, my mother accidentally knocked out my father with an x-ray machine when they worked in the ER. So we bust chops about that all the time that mom just knew how to lay out dad. But uh, yeah, I joined up in 2006, but I'd grown up in that firehouse. My dad was chief when I was growing up and pretty much lived at the firehouse Or in a chief's car at some point just going to calls with them going to the firehouse going to different events and as a kid it's cool what kid doesn't want to play with sirens and all that fun stuff but it was unbeknownst to me at the time the start of how all this crazy stuff would happen in my life and we talked about it the other day like the first Event I ever had with trauma that I can remember and I know I I know I'd seen stuff before that But the one that always stuck out was I was in second grade and You go to school and oh, what'd you do over the weekend? Oh, Johnny Went to fishing with his dad. Kimberly went to dance recital. Oh, Danny. What'd you do? I saw brains come out of a guy's ears
0: So in second grade you saw this.
1: Yeah, and Of course I call my (laughs) call my mom. They're like so Danny said he saw this today, like what happened? And my mom was like, yeah, he was with his dad, they, his dad's a chief and they responded to an auto accident. I can't even tell you the exact intersection it was because I remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, in the car, the car half rolled over, so it's on its side, the guy's hanging out the window and his skull is just wide open and At that age, and I don't know anything better. Okay, there's a guy, there's his brains.
0: What else am I going to do? As I say, at that age, do you even process it? Their brains? I think I knew what it was, I hate to say, because of cartoons. Makes sense. It
1: didn't process, that's a human being. That's somebody that's not going home in their family. And of course, I know it's a generational thing, but parents don't talk to you about that. You just... They don't talk about how they felt. So it's, you don't talk about he, how you feel. You just all right, let's go home, and get on with the rest of our day.
0: So you see this in second grade, you see the brains on the side of the road coming out of this guy's head. Mom and dad don't have a, a, at least the slightest discussion with you about it. I don't think they knew how to discuss it.
1: And it's not that I hold anything against them for it, but even now as a parent myself, how do you approach that? conversation of, Hey, this is what happened. Whoa, how do you feel now? It's a little bit easier. Cause I bounced some stuff off my dad, especially with my son. And I'll ask him, like, how do you explain this stuff? And you go, and now it's fine. It's easy to talk about that stuff to a certain extent, but at the time, I just don't, I don't think it fathomed. or I don't think he thought about what I saw because I think he was trying to shield us, but inadvertently we all know about how you have to position apparatus and he just happened to be at the one spot. He wasn't blocking everything. And like I said, I'm being honest to me at the time, that was the start.
0: Yeah. That's a hell of a start in second grade to see that, that's going to stick with anybody and especially if you don't have time to process it. And at that time, and like you said, that day and age, it, that's not what you did. No, this processing thing is probably, what, a few years old to be accepted in the fire service at least.
1: Oh yeah. I looked at, we look at our parents and firefighters, cops, all that growing up. They're supermen. Even why like going on other calls. I I watched my father countless times, run to a burning house with bare minimum gear, if gear on, and you're like, oh, what's going on? Oh, dad's being a hero. Or you see. Something happening, people run towards danger, and the biggest one that stuck with me as a kid and did with a lot of people was nine eleven. Of course, you're from New York as yeah. well, so of course it's going to stick with you. Yeah, it's. I literally, I saw my father that morning, came went to school, came home, dad's not home. I'm like, Where's dad? Mom tells me he went into New York City, because when everything happened, they called every volunteer agency within the tri-state area. And I remember him calling me that night from ground zero, he, this was the day and age where not everybody had cell phones, but he got a hold of one, calls us. And years later, I found out actually the reason he hung up so quick was because that was when it was, I think it was five world trade center came down Okay, with, and he's on the phone and all of a sudden they're all running down the street and I didn't know this. I'm a kid. But what stuck with me was a couple of weeks later, they had a funeral in the town I grew up in. Actually, one of the guys from our department, who was also an FDMY firefighter, was killed that day. And to that time, it was like the biggest funeral I'd ever been to. And I'm looking around, I'm seeing thousands of firemen, cops, everybody. And these guys are larger than life, they're heroes. And they're sobbing. They're uncontrollably sobbing. And it's the first time it ever hit me that firemen' cops are not indestructible. And it just put it in my head at the time, but didn't really like, stick there because, well, it happens to somebody else. Never happens to you. It, you're never going to deal with that trauma. You're never going to deal with that, that sort of thing. You're always going to be the tough guy. And as we continue through, like I said, the other day, it was, you feel
2: immune as a kid and you feel like nothing's going to touch you, but it ends up eventually getting to you. The first time
1: I said, growing up, I was in everything. I was Boy Scouts, karate, altar server, <laughs> textbook, just blue collar family. But one of the things I had to do with Boy Scouts was you had to be CPR certified to go away to camp. So I got that eight years old. I, I was, I'm CPR certified. Cool. But I never thought I'd have to use it really ever. It's like 12, 13 years old. And I'm with my dad. And by the time he wasn't chief anymore, but they had all the the manager pagers. And it goes off, elderly female cardiac arrest right around the corner from my house. And we're already out. We were doing something, going Home Depot, whatever. And the house is literally half a block away. So my dad throws on his blue light, runs up. He gets out of the car, looks at me. You coming? I'm like, shit, I'm gonna go help my dad. Not knowing what I'm gonna see. and I mean, it happened to be lady that we'd seen almost every day. Cause as soon as he came out of my development, it was the first house right on the corner. They're always out waving to you, hi. Just like the typical neighborhood family. While I walk in, she's on the ground, and my dad checks her pulse, and the pulse, he goes, all right start doing compressions I'm 12 what do I know so I just do what I was taught just start pumping away and we did that for it felt like an eternity until everybody else shows up and I kind of shoot out of the way and after all said and done I got a hey you did a great job you good I'm like yeah I just did shit with my dad come on this is badass and it didn't bother me until years later. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, what the fuck was I doing? 12 years old doing CPR. Like, why am I doing this? I shouldn't have to do this. I'm happy I did because it was an experience and I had plenty of them with my dad after that. Luckily it was mostly when I was in the fire department after that, but that was the start. That was the, as some people say that call the service. I knew what I was gonna do. I knew I was gonna join the fire department regardless.
2: But I didn't think then the track that it would lead me down. I definitely didn't think it was gonna lead me to the decisions I made, the that that questioning in your head, that
0: sense of feeling like You're broken and fucked up. Yeah. When it starts at second grade, second grade, 12 years old. Those are two traumatic, very traumatic calls for anybody, let alone that age. You kind of wonder how many years it takes to boil to the surface. If you don't, if you don't deal with it then, and it's hard for a second grader to deal with something like that. You said that you came to the realization years later after the CPR, how many years later do you think that was? I think it finally started
1: hitting me like. The impact of the calls, the impact of what I was doing, I was probably 19, I started off the fire department and it was no holds apart from day one on calls. My first call was a fatal motorcycle accident where a girl got thrown, dismembered. That was my first call. My first fire literally was the school around the corner and we had the roof come down on us. We were by ourselves for... 15 minutes and it was hairy it was right from the get-go it was off to the races but then you think about it and i tried going to my dad i was like i'm this shit's bothering me and nothing against him or anything but he's like, you either suck it up or this isn't the job for you and what kid watching their parents like kick ass take names doing it they can do it i'm not gonna shy away from that i got to way i gotta i gotta live up to their reputation i gotta live up to their expectations so you swallow it and then you swallow more and it just keeps adding up and then at that age what else you do you start drinking you start partying you start finding ways to cope and my way for the longest time was I find girls to hook up with. And it would just, that started the unhealthy choices that are, right, I need an adrenaline rush, I need something to help this fit. It's a healthy way to do it, but you don't think about the effects it's having on you, the effects it's
0: having on other people. So it stems from second grade, 12 years old through your volunteer time as a teenager. Yeah. At what age did you decide to become a career firefighter? Let's start down that path and and then we'll get back to the, uh, to all the, these effects that you're going to experience. So I knew early on,
1: this is what I wanted to do. This is what I'm going to go for. I went immediately into getting my EMT and then up by us, it was every fire district was volunteer, but they had two people every 12 hours who were the paid EMTs and paid medics. And they'd go out first and they'd get on scene quick so that you had that four or five minute response time. And then the volunteers would bring the ambulance in after you. So I started off with that and that was 2007. How old were you? Eight, I was 18, I probably just turned 19. So you get your medic at 19 or? Is I got my EMT, EMT. at 19, Yeah, I got okay. my medic in 2011. So roughly 22. Yeah. So I was like, all right, this is what I'm gonna do. Started getting jobs. Started working for X number of fire departments because it was easier to get a per DM or a part-time job. It was harder to get a full-time. Of course. But of course I was taking FDNY. I was taking Rochester, New Rochelle, Yonkers. Whatever test was in New York, I took it. And of course the numbers are high for anywhere out there. So I kept doing EMS. Kept running calls, I'd go from one job to another, then go to the firehouse, run my calls there, go to the next job. Like I literally lived, breathed, and ate the fire service. I was constantly running. It wasn't unheard of in a single day to run 20, 25 calls. And they're not all the lift assist, the fall down, pick them up. These were some legit high fidelity interesting calls and even starting off BLS, like I was a brand new EMT and we're getting stuff that you're by yourself and it, the whole world feels like it's falling around you. We had one guy, I, I the other day I was thinking about it, cause actually I was up in New York with some buddies and one of them was an old chief of mine. So we're talking and he goes, oh, you remember that guy, uh, the cherry picker? And and I'm thinking about it and I was like, holy shit, I I forgot about that guy. And and I I was an EMT two weeks. And we get a guy that falls out of a cherry picker, puts a chainsaw through his taint and pretty much all the way up to his rib cage. And I'm like, what the hell do I do? And I'm trying to figure it out. I have no idea, I have no guidance. It was, hey, you got your EMT? Cool, here's the keys to the car. Go save lives. Yeah, go run with it. Yeah, figure it out as you go along. And at the time, you get back from those calls and nobody talks to you. You just, all right, get ready for the next one. And it was just like that. So I just kept do trugging along with it, doing that. And then got my medic in 2011. Actually, my son's mother was pregnant at the time with my son and ran some interesting calls during that time. I was actually the first time I actually ran a child CPR. It was three days after I found out my, my ex was pregnant with my son and lady runs out of the house and throws a lifeless kid at me. And I'm like, shit, this kid is no better than what my son's going to be at that sometime. And it was like the first time the thoughts of life, the thoughts of parent or the thoughts of what's gonna things that might actually start to affect me. But like I said, it was, you don't talk about it. It's just, you suck it up, you move on. So fast forward a little, I did my medic right through the New York city program and then I think it was 2013. I started applying elsewhere. I had applications all over the place. I think I, one time I had 60 applications in, I was like, I just want out New York. I want off Long Island. I need something bigger. I need something better. And uh, luckily the place where I'm at now, was, I was, they were like, all right, well, what if you get called by this person? Whoever calls me first gets me first. I'm not holding it out for any one department. I just want off Long Island. I want out of this place. I need to find new and better things. Because up until that point, I was still going between my parents' house I was living at and then living with the girl i was dating at the time and that was toxic as all hell but that was no not entirely her fault but she worked in the hospital in like the icu so she had her shit i had my shit we never talked about it it was just you came home you drank you slept you got back up you dealt with life and it wasn't the healthiest and I just kept going back to Oh, if I can't talk to somebody else, I'll just find ways to deal with my own personal shit my own way. And everybody has their own way of whether it's drugs, alcohol. For me, it was sex. I didn't care what I did. I just, I didn't care how risky it was. I didn't care if I was going to get caught. I just wanted that rush. I wanted that feeling of nothing matters right now. Just get my pleasure and mind dump. For a minute, and move on. And unfortunately, it was it was not the healthiest way of dealing with it. It was the most, I don't want to say destructive way, but at the time, I thought it was the most destructive way. Not knowing that was just the beginning. That was just gonna start the process where later on I was that wasn't doing it for me. So I drank more that wasn't doing it for me. So I found Vicodin's and I get that. And I tried Xanax and there were, there was a whole bunch I was trying at the time just so I wouldn't feel because when I started feeling, when I was alone, when I was whatever, you start feeling all those demons creep up and it's like, not get the hell away from me. I don't want to deal with you. So then he found another way, another girl, another drink, another pill, whatever I could get my hands on at the time, just to not feel alone in my head. Cause that was just, that was the worst feeling in the world. That kept going even after I got down here. I got out of that relationship, got into a new one. And most people that, that know me got a story of what happened with, uh, that girl because there was a time where it blew up and it got me locked up I, I laughed afterwards the stories that came out about that i heard every rendition from that oh i just you got arrested to i was supposed i was fighting cops and got tased and i was like nobody even knows the story of what even happened it's the fire department nobody needs to know no, the real story they, <laughs> And it wasn't, that, I, it wasn't as dramatic as everybody thought. I we'd gotten into a fight because I got caught cheating, and it turned into a screaming match. And she ended up leaving, but she said I put my hands on her, and we can argue that till the end of time. Because I've never physically put my hands on anybody in a mean way. I was just trying to be like, "Hey, let's talk about this." But it's neither here nor there. It was what it was. But it was like the cherry on top of all the shit that was going on all the bubbling up or i thought it was going to be all the bubbling up and it got me into a bad place i drank myself till i blacked out i had cut myself i didn't care i felt horrible and i thought that was worse i was going to feel what year was this that was 2018 Yeah, that was 2018. I thought that night was the worst. Not knowing the days and weeks after that were just gonna be even worse. Because at that point, I was crashing on people's couches because I couldn't be at my place because we we were living together and anytime you have an accusation of assault and battery, you can't live at your place. So I'm crashing on people's couches. I'm staying wherever I can. I'm on light duty because the department won't let you be on a unit if you don't have a valid EMT. And of course, the second you get arrested, the state suspends your license. So then the thoughts start creeping in. I'm spending a lot of time alone. Trying not to drink
2: as much. It's not working. Pills ain't doing shit. And I'm just sitting there looking at
1: all the trouble I'm causing people, all the shit that's going on in my head, the demons that are coming back, I'm reliving calls, I'm reliving instances, I'm all over the place with no help in sight. And at this time, like I'm going to, I was going to therapy through uh, an employer provided service, we'll put it that way. Pretty much, somebody that doesn't understand, I honestly felt like they didn't understand what I was going through. They hadn't been in my shoes and I was like all right this is gonna be it this is gonna be the end of it because I'm not dealing with this shit anymore and I was going down the road one day after uh, after I got off work and I was like all right I'm just gonna do it I'm gonna take my truck I'm gonna hit the gas as hard as I can first tree first pole whatever I get
2: to I'm driving straight into it. I'm. I was just done with it. It was. The hardest and it felt like the easiest
1: choice was that's what I'm going to do. And I got my truck the time. I was doing probably buck 10, buck 20. How I didn't get pulled over in that time span. I have no idea. And I, found, I, I saw the pole up ahead. I was going for it. And for some reason, the last second, the thoughts of my family, the thoughts of my friends in my head just was it just it hit me like a ton of bricks, like I can't do this to them, and I cut that wheel as hard as I could, and luckily didn't hit anybody or anything. but I was like all right, after that, I was like, "I need real help. I need to do something about it,
2: and that's what started
1: my uh, my path down therapy i actually went out and i got away from the employer provided one that wasn't doing me jack shit. and i actually went out i did research i looked up different therapists found one went to her for a little bit thought i was getting better thought i was doing good and then
2: just not feeling at home like i could talk to my partner
1: who ironically enough was the same one that i got in trouble with because we had worked it out or so i thought so you're back in the house with her i was back in the house with her we were working things out or i thought but there there was a clear divide there was unspoken business
0: that neither one of us wanted to broach what do you mean by unspoken business
1: i was resenting her for what she did she was resenting me but we weren't talking about it we were like oh i missed you i love you all that happy stuff but we weren't figuring out what the root of the problem was it was just i'm sorry i cheated she's okay i forgive you but not, why did you do this? What made you get to that point? What made you think that was okay? So uh, I'm going to therapy. I'm talking about how I want to get better. I feel like I'm feeling like I'm doing things wrong, but I don't, I, I hadn't figured out why I'm doing things wrong. Just, okay, let's figure out how to make you feel better. Let's figure out how to take care of the surface level problem doesn't do anything. I ended up cheating again and it finally just was like, all right, well, I got, she was threatening to walk out on me. I was like, all right, I'm going to take this even, I'm going to take this more serious. We're going to start figuring out the problem. Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? She'd ask me and I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why I need this.
0: And this being the fact that you're going out and
1: cheating on her and finding. I'm going out cheating on her. I'm finding Vicodins. I'm finding whatever I can to be
0: numb. So it's the sex, it's the Vicodin, the alcohol, yeah. all of it still? All of it still. Okay. And I finally found a different therapist,
1: someone that was purposely for first responders. I was like, I, going to the generic one really doesn't do much. So I found one actually happened to be a friend of mine who I knew she was a therapist, but I didn't know her specialties or anything. I just worked with her a couple of times through foundations I'm a part of. And when I say life-altering, sitting down and talking, and she goes, okay, I'm not surprised by any of this. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, what do you mean you're not surprised? Like, I'm surprised. She goes, no, this is typical. This is what happens with, she calls it our tribe. Anybody that's first responder military, she calls it your tribe. Cause we're all one big family. We really are. And she goes, let's go back and talk about your past. Let's talk about things that's gone on. And that was the first big step to
2: realizing why I was doing what I was doing. It wasn't that I was, like, I
1: wasn't trying to be a womanizer. I wasn't trying to be popping pills. I wasn't trying to be anything, but I didn't know what else to do because at the time, talking wasn't a thing. Like, you didn't
0: talk about your problems. You say at the time, this is maybe 2019? Yeah, it's not long ago. It's still, it just, it.
1: It seems like forever ago, but it, like you said, it's, it's 2018, 2019. And it's three years. We're ago. just starting to bridge the gap of it's okay to not be okay. And I was like, all right, let's figure this out. Let's start down this path. So I stopped taking the pills, like hardcore stopped. Cut down the drinking like i'll have a beer socially with people like i don't i'm not worried about that but i stopped drinking to get drunk drinking to forget to all right we're out we're celebrating
2: i'll have a beer too and even that for a while it was nothing and then i started to realize i need to open up to people i need to talk about the hard question, the
1: things I don't want to talk about. The the nights of being up with your mind racing, thinking about everything you could have done. And it goes, for years I was reliving calls after calls, wondering, was it my mistake? Was it somebody else's? What could I have done? And then reliving each one over and over
2: and some of them were some of them were beneficial because of the bonds it created
1: but that was all i got out of it and luckily a lot of those bonds are still great my best friend in high school we've been best friends since and it's all because of a call we were on that went it went south quick Long story short on that one, I was actually going to one of my jobs as a DMT and my page goes off for residential structure fire in an apartment complex, multiple calls. Right off the bat, you're going to work. I call my relief hub, I was like, I'm gonna be late. We're going to a job, which up there, it was, you call, (laughs) it was okay. It wasn't like, if you don't show up, you're fired. It was, all right, we'll figure out relief for you because we understand, because everybody knew each other. So I show up to the firehouse, I'm on the first two engine and it's me, my driver officer, and four guys. In, four other guys in the back. And my, we turn the corner and a mile away, you can see the glow. So all right, cool, we're go, we're getting this, we're gonna go do it. We're getting updates in route, occupant strapped within. So that just heightens everything up. And we pull up and it's like a 30 unit, complex like an l-shaped complex and it's one of those where if you go in the one door it goes to the first floor if you go in the next door it goes to the second floor this there's fire through the roof so we got people yelling at us there's a lady in there she ran back in two of my guys go on the search team i'm on the nozzle
2: my best friend's backing me up So i'm like all right we're gonna we're gonna kick the hell out of this We go up the stairs and
1: there's no smoke. It is just floor to ceiling flame. It's bright as day, I can see everything. And as I'm going up the stairs, they're bringing the victim out and she is, she's fucked up. Like I, you could, she was fucked. So we, they pass by us, we go up the stairs and I start hitting the one room that's on my left. I was like, all right, I can go left. I can go I went left. knocking down the room. And I got that one room knocked down. And all of a sudden, my hose goes limp. I got no water. Calling over the radio. Hey, I got no water. I got no water. I'm getting weight one. As soon as I think the second message went out, That room lit back up, the roof's coming down, and I'm starting to feel the floor saggy. And I I called the Mayday, I'm like, we're losing the structure, we got shit collapsing,
2: we're bailing, between me and the stairs is my brother. And I was, we were 21,
1: at the time he wasn't the smallest guy. We called him Big Red for a reason. And I pick him up, I physically I picked him up and threw him down the stairs. And as I'm doing it, I'm starting to feel the floor now give way even more. And I'm like, I don't care what happens to me, I'm getting him out. And either A, I'm going through the floor, or I'm gonna have
2: enough time to get him down the stairs and I'm jumping. And Wherever I leaned, I was like, throw him. And I had enough time that
1: I was able to grab the banister and kind of pull myself. And I go down the stairs. I didn't hit one step on the way down. And I landed straight on top of him. And we ended up regrouping ourselves and going back. We hit it from the outside and made different attacks and we put it out. And I went back to work and we didn't
2: think about it we were like all right cool we good fire whatever go about your day and it took we were 21 then we finally talked
1: about it about three weeks before i moved down here and we're just having a couple beers the one night and He's like, I got to ask you something. I'm like, what? He goes, why'd you throw me down the stairs?
2: I was like, Why well, would not. This is what you do. And he goes, but you didn't know if you were getting out. I was like, I don't care. At the time I didn't care. I'm like, it's what you would have done for me.
1: And... Since that day, like we've had a lot of instances and in, where we've been through some nasty shit, like a friend of ours d- passed away line of duty, and pretty much we were inseparable after it we like we went through that. We had birth of my son he's he's he calls my parents mom and pops like all his parents mom and pops. It's just how it is. We've been inseparable And how the Godfather of his daughter, my niece, and which that was a whole blessing in disguise because
2: that gave me a whole new view on life, just outside of my own kids. But it was things like that, like events that you don't think
1: about at the time. You just get brush it off as another good call. It's another good call. It took years or. To Remember, hey, what's actually a good call because it's not good for somebody else. It sure as hell wasn't good for
2: us. I think it was just the we made it out a live type of good call.
1: We made it out, we thought unscathed. And then you realize later on, nah, you just didn't you didn't make it unscathed, you just
2: didn't have physical injuries at the time. there's just things like that for a while that you eventually, lucky for me,
1: I realized I need to do something about this because it was destroying my life. I hadn't had one healthy relationship until I finally
2: took the time to realize I need to take care of me. And it took a very traumatic breakup, being on my own for a little bit, and then
1: luckily I found the girl I'm now with who
0: god bless i don't know how she deals with me half the time but she gets. i don't me. know how anybody deals with you half the time to be honest but that's just my opinion <laughs>
1: well that's it yeah. we were joking about the other day because we were actually with my brother because i had to go up to new york because unfortunately a uh, friend of mine that was on the usar team with me passed away the line of duty actually doing a training event for our old usar team and these are guys We went through Hurricane Sandy together. We went through all the initial training, like, when I say, when people are like blood, sweat, and tears, we had the blood and sweat, but we were very lucky as a team
2: until recent. And then the tears part came. But we were sitting with my brother and I was just like,
1: some days I don't know why, I just feel like I'm always an asshole. and. And he goes. That's because you put on the facade because you don't want you don't want people to see how you really feel. And it, it hit me. And it hit me like it hit me like a ton of bricks. I. Everybody knows I got that New York personality. I don't really give a shit what people say. For a long time, I didn't. I had thought I didn't care what people thought. But that was just the facade I was putting on because I didn't want people to see. Underneath this. Is, a lot of scars. A lot of damage a lot of shit I don't want somebody else to see.
2: And thinking, I almost thinking that old school mindset of, we're Superman to everybody else.
1: They don't need to see my scars. They don't need to see how ugly it is underneath.
2: And it only took until, I'd say six, seven months ago that I actually started opening up about shit like to other people.
1: Before that, I kept everything myself and I know there's quite a few people that think
2: he's just an asshole. It's not that I'm an asshole, it's just granted most days I can't be an asshole. It's just for
1: a long time I was keeping myself from letting other people see what was going on inside of my head. And the easiest way to do that was to push people away, even though I didn't want that. I wanted them in my life. I wanted them to be a part of me. But I'd push them away because I didn't want to hurt them. Because I thought in my head, I'm going to hurt you if you're in my life. You're going to see my damage. You're, you're going to be pulled into the drama, the trauma, all that.
2: I don't want to do that to you. And it, it took its toll for a long time. Like it, the hardest part,
1: but the best part of therapy is learning how to communicate, learning how to talk about the stuff that was hard to talk about. And even talking to my father, we'd been on hundreds of calls together, good, bad, indifferent. Some of the best calls I've ever run with my father some of the worst calls I ever had were running with my father because I was trying to protect him while he's trying to protect me. And it's just constant back and forth. It, would, it was button heads left and right. But that was because we were trying to protect each other. And I didn't even realize my father had his own mental health stuff until actually it was the day before COVID actually became a thing in New York, he got a knee replacement and doctor's going through his med history and names a couple of antidepressants. I'm like, wait till the doctor listen, like what the fuck? And he goes, what? I was like, you weren't going to tell me this. He goes, how am I going to tell you this? I said, why are you on this? And he goes, why wouldn't I be? I did 30 something years in corrections. He goes, I've done, at the time, it was only 40 years. Only. In the fire service. He goes, my lungs are shit from ground zero. Because I saw shit that I, don't, that I don't even want to talk about ever. And he's still, to this day, I've poked a little bit, but he won't tell me. But he's like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how to tell you. And that was the thing growing up. That was I don't want to say ingrained, but it's the best way to put it it's that we didn't know how to talk about things. My mom, I love her. But her family did not talk about anything. So she was almost emotionally detached on some things. She was a great mom. My parents were they busted their ass for me and my sister. I am grateful for what they did for us but we didn't talk about things like that as a family you just held it in you
2: work through it go to church and pray yeah it worked well for me
0: <laughs> so the therapist you found that you met through the foundations right yeah this starts coming out during that time yeah okay and, What does she find? What discoveries do you make while you're in therapy with her? And not specific, not the cause necessarily, not what caused it, but what was the result of everything that, what did she say? Was there a diagnosis? Was there medication? What route did you go?
1: So I, she diagnosed me with PTSD, anxiety, depression. I went down the meds route. I did. And it's been like, I hate to say, they teach in like EMT school, that lock and key. Yeah, it really is a locking key when it comes to mental health meds. I've been on Lexapro, Zoloft, Xanax, which is actually in the lower dose, which scared the hell out of me because I took it to be dumb. Now I'm taking it for the real reason for it. It's been amazing. But it's been back and forth. And some days I got discouraged because the meds wouldn't work. There was actually a couple that made me worse. And I would take it and my head would spin even harder. It was like looking at a New York City subway station, with all the train's going by and you cannot focus on one. I wasn't sleeping for a while and it was just a lot of trial and error. So it took a while of patience and understanding and God bless her soul, she deals with me. Cause I know I'm not easy. I'm thick-headed, I'm stubborn, I'm a New Yorker. It's how it is but what i found was that i needed to love myself more instead of trying to protect everyone else protect myself by opening up to myself about what's going on what's the problem how do i fix a problem and there was something for the longest time of if not me then who that was stretching me so far that it was costing me and i was always involved in stuff but at what risk so i finally took some time to do some self-love do some mental healing bought myself a motorcycle <laughs> which as dangerous as it is no distractions other than what you're doing at the present moment
2: God, that's like, that's mo- that's meditation on a whole different level that I didn't even know about. But yeah, that was, it's, that's been the story for
1: the last year with her. And it from where I was then to where I am now, I look at it and I'm just like, it's like night and day. I wouldn't open up about anything before then. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I would just go home, deal with my shit. I kept my promise to myself or I thought I was keeping my promise to myself, but I was just angry and an asshole to now I'm able to talk about what's bothering me. I'm able to almost ground, actually ground is the best way to put it, ground myself and get rid of those thoughts when they start creeping in or realize okay those thoughts are there what purpose are they serving none bye see you later and then move on to the next one which trying to deal with those demons it was actually a lot easier because she pointed out to me and i've kept it going since is if it's not serving a positive purpose forget about it just let it go And it took a while for that detachment to finally set in, to finally say it's okay to not feel okay all the time. You're going to have your down days. It's like working out. Some days are great. Some days suck. And on the days that it sucks, you still do something just to keep the wheels turning, move in a positive manner, move towards something instead of shrieking back and being like, I failed yet again. So what things
0: are you doing on a daily basis?
1: Every morning I'm finding a way to, I used to get up, get ready for work. Just run out the door. Every morning on the way to work, I'm doing some type of positive affirmations. Keep my, get my head going in the right manner. Start my day all as best I can. Some days are better than others, but. Taking time for myself, taking the 10 minutes a day to read something new, taking the hour a day at minimum to go work out, even if it's not a great workout, do something because you get that endorphin release. Okay. It's
2: good. You're not static. Being okay with and accepting with myself that some days I'm going to feel certain ways and that's Okay. It's been a lot of having to sit and think when I don't want to sit and think
1: and be like, okay, you can't hurt me anymore. The thoughts that come to my head, all right, you know what, maybe I did make mistakes in the past. That's the past. I can't change a lot of things. I can't change the outcomes of some of the patients. I can't change the outcomes of some of the calls. What did I learn from it, though? And I started doing that. I started journaling everything I got. I go through one of those leather bound books every two weeks. And I got a pile of, in a box at work that I just keep, just cause that's honestly been the best place I journal is like during the, every, when everybody's taking that downtime, I'm upstairs journaling and
2: it's five, six pages a day, easy. And it helps get my thoughts in order because
1: I just thought I was scatterbrained for the longest time. Then I found out that was one of the problems with PTSD is you end up being scatterbrained because you can't put your thoughts in order all the time. So I started making lists. As simple as and as stupid as it sounds, making that list in the morning of I have to take care of XYZ has Made my life more beneficial, more positive. Because even when I have a bad day, I just look at that list and I'm like, all right, I got three out of five things done today. That's a positive. Even if I got one thing done that day, it's a positive. All right, move on to the next day. I got to take care of this. Just seeing the progress, even if it's, I take a step back, physically seeing that progress helps rewire my brain to realize, okay, you're going to make mistakes, but it's only a failure. If you let it be a failure and just constantly doing that every day, eventually at some point it worked out because even when I was having the roughest of days and I'll be honest, I'm not at a busy station anymore. So I have plenty of time to sit and think it helped make those days even easier because instead of sitting there going, fuck, why am I at such a slow station? I want want to do more calls, I want to do this. I wanted to do more calls because I wanted to help more people, but it was mostly because I didn't want to sit there and think about things. And now being able to think about it and realize, all right, let's battle something else this day. Let's make a positive outcome. Whether it's, I talked to my rookie about, hey, what's going on at home? Everything okay? Going over what he saw, trying to pass on what I've learned to him early so that 16 years later, he's not in the same position I was. So 10 years into his career, he is not drinking, taking pills, ruining relationships because I don't want people to go through what I went through and it was nobody's fault but myself because I didn't have the pride to sit there and say, I'm hurting, I need help. We teach recruits all the time, call Day if you think you're hurt or you're in trouble and we drill it into them. But until recently, it was not okay to call Day on your cell for mental health, for the things you saw at work or things that happened in your life. And it was things like that I wish I had known then that could have helped me along the
2: way to get me to where I am now sooner.
0: I'll edit that out, but I thought it stopped recording for a second. (laughs) I have it recording here as well, but so when we talked when we talked a couple of weeks ago, you talked about meditation and therapy, so those are your keys, right? The talking it out, the medication or the meditation therapy. How often are you going to therapy today? I'm still doing once a week, some days or some weeks, twice a week.
1: And the cool part about it is my therapist is awesome. I can literally text her and be like, I'm having a bad day. And regardless of what she's doing she will get back to me at some point and talk it out with me, even if it's a 10 minute conversation. And that has been a huge thing because some days you just, you need somebody to talk to and you can't schedule a therapy session. You can't do all those things that you would get to in a therapy session. So even that 10 minute conversation through text message,
0: Is beneficial so you mentioned that you put up a front as an asshole yeah because it was easier than it was easier to be thought of as an asshole than it was to share the scars and the traumas and to let somebody know who you are so on a personal note and this is funny because we met when do we meet 2015 16 ish yeah around that yeah i joined here in 2015 so it would have been 2016 probably on on the east end of our county i know that during that time leading up to 2018 where things start to come to a head for you yeah you were a small doses kind of guy for me i could take you in small doses but i didn't want to i didn't want to have those conversations but now it's obvious why and when we talked a couple weeks ago I remember going in thinking, all right, what's this going to be like? Because I was curious. I didn't know what it was going to be like. We've bounced ideas back and forth with each other via Instagram, but we really hadn't had a conversation since probably 2016 or 17. Yeah. But when we sat and we talked, you were a completely different person when I talked to you that day. And I think it's been an amazing transformation for you. And I'm proud of you. I definitely appreciate that because I knew I was a small doses kind of guy. Didn't want to always
1: admit it, but... It was easier to do that than, for lack of better words, I didn't want to look like a pussy in
0: front of people sometimes. Understandable. I mean, we're firefighters as yeah. dumb as it sounds we still say it. We're firefighters. Yeah. All right. So as we wrap up and you've heard a couple of the episodes, so you know what I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you about an everyday carry. The show's called the things we all carry for a good reason. We carry that stuff into a fire, into a call, into a ems call whatever it is we're carrying tools in with us but we carry the scar out with us we carry a memory out with us what's something physical that you carry on your body all the time that you feel naked without there are actually three things i carry every day everywhere i carry
1: and for the most part they don't leave my body okay the chain i wear was actually given to me by my grandmother the day my grandfather died she literally took it off him gave it to me and doesn't come hasn't come off since what's the it, chain So, gold chain, but then it's got a Celtic cross and a St. Jude medal. Okay. And, I mean, that's never come off. It's, it, if I take it off, oh, I feel naked. I have my bracelet that was for my friend Joey D. A lot of people know of Joey. He was one of the firefighters that bailed out on Black Sunday. He ended up passing away years later from injuries sustained. With that, he actually had an accidental overdose on painkillers and antidepressants from the scars from that event. So I never take off that, bra- that bracelet because it's been a that's a constant reminder of it could always be worse. But then I wonder, could it have been better? Because if he had the opportunity to talk to people the way we are now, would that have changed anything for him? Would it have made life easier? Would he have needed? The antidepressants. And he taught me a whole he taught me what it was like to be that type of firefighter that you that everybody strives to be, because he was the go-to guy. And he was a good friend of mine. And the last thing is I have one of three challenge coins I carry with me. Most of the time it's my Honor Guard Academy one, just because it reminds me that the things we do aren't just for you, they're for everybody else. And even when you got to stand, when you got to stand tall, you got to stand tough. You're doing it because you're helping somebody, but it reminds me that we sometimes have to find somebody else to stand tall staff, stand tough for us. And the other two are Memorial ones that I got from two funerals that I did that were friends of mine and I don't always keep them on me as much. One because I'm afraid of losing them, and if I
0: lose them, I'm gonna spin out. <laughs> but yeah, those are the three things. I like it. That's that's quite a list, but they all have meaning and they're all appropriate. So good choices. All right, what book? <laughs> as cheesy
1: as it's gonna sound, actually, extreme ownership. Oh, Jocko Willing. Yeah, all right. It's uh one of those things that no matter what aspect of my life I could take those lessons and incorporate it into whether it's my personal life, my work life, whatever, just having ownership over, especially how you feel, taking ownership of it, taking the lessons learned from that to not end up in another, they say blue on blue, but I don't want to be fighting myself because that's where you're going to get hurt the most.
0: It's like extreme ownership in your own life. Yeah. Guess we could all take a dose of some extreme ownership in our own lives. Definitely. Brother, it's been a good conversation.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank not you for coming easiest, by. It's always
0: easiest, but... It's all right. They're not supposed to always be easy. No. So we're sharing some deep stuff here, and so it's not expected to be easy. So I appreciate it. just want to say thank you again. Thank you, man. Cool. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.